everybody, Randy here. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank one of our sponsors, and that is Bird Dogs. Bird Dogs is the maker of shorts and pants, khaki shorts, gym shorts, swimsuits. They make them all. On the pants side, they have joggers and everyday khaki pants. What's really cool about both their shorts and their pants is they come with a built-in liner. It's honestly like having a super comfortable pair of underwear right inside the garment. So I'm not telling you to go commando necessarily, but the liner, you certainly can if you're so inclined. Another thing I really love about bird dogs, sometimes it's hard for me to find good sizing, both on the shorts and the pants. They have a very wide variety of sizes. They have a ton of stuff in stock. So with spring and summer just around the corner, would encourage you, especially if you need shorts for the season, go check out bird dogs. You can wear them on the golf course. You can wear them night out on the town. Extremely, extremely versatile. So listeners, go to birddogs.com. Enter code TRAPDRAW, all one word. And right now, they're going to throw in a free Bird Dogs dad hat for you. That's birddogs.com, promo code TRAPDRAW, and boom, a free Bird Dogs dad hat with your pair of Bird Dogs. You will not take these things off, I promise you. Thank you so much to Bird Dogs for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And now into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw Podcast. My name, as always, is Randy, and uh, this is a fun one for me today. We are talking baseball. The season is getting started this week. And joining me, first-time guest, I'm so excited. I love her writing. I love following her on Twitter. It is Stephanie Epstein, senior writer, Sports Illustrated. You can find her on Twitter, at Steph Epstein. Stephanie, first of all, thank you so much for making time. Like I said, I'm a big fan of your work, and it's a thrill to talk to you. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Uh, I'm doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Good, good. And I understand, are you still out uh, in Arizona? Are, are you st- still covering spring training? Is that right? Yes, I am. I did a week in Florida, and now I'm in the middle of a week or 10 days in Arizona. Nice. What uh, Do you have a preference, Florida or Arizona? Arizona is way better for what I do from a national writer perspective, bouncing around because Arizona or Florida rather sprung up pretty organically. The camps, like they realized they needed somewhere to train. And so they made them, but Arizona, they decided we should have spring training here. So in Florida, you can sometimes be driving three and a half hours from one place to another in Arizona. Everything's within 45 minutes. You stay in one hotel. It's a, it's a good experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can see why that you would, you would like that aspect of it. What's the what's the vibe around spring training? Is it you, you know it's a very compressed schedule coming out of the lockout, but a lot of fans around. Does it feel like a somewhat normal spring training to you? Yeah, I think everybody's in a pretty good mood, which is fairly normal for spring training because everybody's undefeated at this point. Um, yeah, the player, everybody just seems really happy to be back and happy to be here. Uh, nobody really wants to talk about baseball labor. They want to talk about baseball. They're all very happy to be playing baseball. The most uh, 
the biggest way it's different, I think, is that some guys are not pitchers, especially are not quite where they would be from a workload perspective normally. So you see a lot of guys who are nor the normal progression would be, they would throw six innings in their second to last spring start and then taper down to four. And then they would be ready to go for opening day or for the beginning of the season. Now they're all, most of them are like going to be at four in their second to last start. They're all, they're a little bit behind, um, yeah. but other than that, you can't really tell. Uh, which will be interesting because I feel like um, at least some of the roster decisions coming out of spring and how to manage the bullpen and, and the starting pitcher load, it's it's all things that could be a little interesting, at least for the first month, month plus of the season. Uh, well, you mentioned nobody wants to talk about labor, but I actually want to talk about labor. And that's where I was hoping we could start was um, the, this, this new collective bargaining agreement, uh, the fallout. You know, what are some of the biggest takeaways, in your opinion, for fans uh, to keep in mind as the new baseball season begins? What, what you know, as as far as play on the field or how it affects uh, salaries or or whatnot, are, are there certain issues that you know? Hey, these are the one, two, three most important things coming out of the new CBA. Yeah, I think they improved uh, the economic structure in the sense that in the past young players have always been underpaid in baseball because they're under team control and they don't really start to make money until their fourth year. And even at that point, they're not making that much. Um, And the way it used to work is that you would get underpaid when you were young and then you would sign some kind of ridiculous free agent deal and you would get way overpaid for the production that you were doing. And then GMs were kind of like, what if we didn't do that? (laughs) And so all of a sudden these guys were not getting really not getting paid the way they expected to get paid ever So they can't find a way to write into the CBA that GMs have to overpay them when they're old. (laughs) What they decided to do instead was try to get the younger guys paid more earlier, which was smart. Um, They didn't go as, as far as I think some of them wanted to like try to get to free agency earlier, try to get to arbitration earlier. They didn't do any of that, but they did um, increase the minimum salary and they added this pool of money that basically can reward the best young players. So after the season, if you finish, uh, you know, in the top of MVP voting or rookie of the year voting, you get allocated these extra many millions of dollars. So that's definitely a good start for for some of these guys. Like the year Pete Alonso won the home run derby, he made more from winning the home run derby. He made a million dollars than he did that whole season. He made like five hundred and seventy thousand dollars. So that's a lot of money, to be clear. But the average major league career is like three or four years long. So you know, if you if, if this is kind of all you do and you don't have a lot of other marketable skills, you, you can't really retire on three years of six hundred thousand dollars. So that was their, that's their main goal. And that's that's what they achieved. And then as far as on the field, uh, are, are you a are you a proponent of the designated hitter coming to the National League? I feel like this is a big, big question. This is a big moment in our uh, in our relationship here. I think it's a bummer. I liked it. Yes, that's the correct I, answer. I was not a, there should be no DH person. I loved two separate leagues. I thought that was so goofy and weird and such a good reminder that this is all nonsense, you know, <laughs> like it's sport. It's not, none of this <laughs> is real. This is all like a thing that we decided to love, even though a lot of it doesn't make any sense. And I loved that. And so I'm really sad to see that go because I thought it was silly and funny and it was fun to watch American league pitchers the week before they had to play at a national league park. Like, Oh my God, what is batting? I have to take batting practice. What do I do? That was really funny. It was funny to, to watch national league teams try to figure out who their DH was going to be before they played at an AL park. And so 
I am going to miss that. Um, but I do respect that they are making, you know, the game can be slow. It can be hard to watch. And so that's not the change I would have made, but it's, I think it's good that they're open to making rule changes to improve the experience. Well, and just following up on something you said, you know, it used to be like really the line of demarcation between the American and national leagues. And now to, to your point, it's like, I don't particularly think baseball has any plans to like rethink the leagues or the divisions, but it's like all, all that kind of goes away. It's like, I, I don't really understand that the two leagues just seem very arbitrary anymore. Right. And I, I'm going to really miss it. I think just from a, it's been that way my whole life and, you know, uh, maybe buying into the baseball purist thing, but um, yeah, it's interesting to me, like what, where baseball potentially goes down the road in terms of the, the divisions and the alignment of, of teams, I guess. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear which teams are sort of upset about losing the DH. Like some of them, obviously the pitch, some pitchers like, Zach Greinke loves to hit, and he said he would have probably stayed in the NL if pitchers could still hit, but because they couldn't, he decided to go back to the Royals. So the, from the individual pitchers, obviously some of them are going to be mad because they really think that they're sluggers. Um, but it was interesting to hear Farhan Zaidi of the, of the uh, Giants the other day say that they were sort of disappointed they lost the, the pitcher hitting because they feel like they're really good at maximizing their bench. And so they think it's uh, a disadvantage to them. Now it's like too easy. Basically everybody has to, can have the same number of players and they don't have to figure out, they don't have to have good pinch hitting options. They don't have to sort of understand when to take the pitcher out early so that they can hit for him. That stuff. He thinks they're good at that. And it, he's sad to lose that advantage. And I think he's, he's right to feel that way. They are good at that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that, hits the nail on the head for me. I, part of it is like, it just feels a little uh, baseball and the strategy. It feels a little dumbed down from where I sit uh, with a DH, but um, I, you know, I know there are certainly many people that would tell me I'm, I'm wrong for that. So I, I guess we'll see, but a, a little disappointing. I, I should say a lot disappointing to see the DH come to the national league along those lines, uh, new playoffs. We've expanded to 12, I guess three, do I have this right? The the three division winners in each league and then just the top, the next best three teams for three wild cards. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And the top two division winners get a bye. Okay. The division round. Um, okay. So for them, it'll be like the regular playoffs. And then for everybody else, they play this extra series. And then the only other thing that really has caught my attention is the draft lottery. I was I was wondering if you could maybe explain on a very basic level, what, what that is now. Yeah. There's been a problem in baseball as with several sports, but for some reason it feels worse in baseball uh, with tanking teams, like just trying to lose. And so one idea, one goal of the players during the CBA was to try to make that less likely. And in some ways that's because they like the game to be good and competitive and fans to be interested, but also the more teams that are trying, the more teams that are likely to spend money on free agents. So their motivations there are pretty aligned with the fans. The players want more teams spending money. Um, and so they're trying to make the draft, the idea of getting the first pick less attractive or it less the, that, that whole, that plan at least of trying to lose games and get the first draft pick less attractive by instituting a draft lottery. Like for example, the NBA has, uh, I don't actually think that's going to work because teams aren't like in baseball, the, first pick is years away from the majors. Usually it's not, you can't just sort of redo your franchise like basketball or football can. 
teams don't usually tank for that first pick. They tank like to save money and not have to basically just not have to spend money. So I don't think that's going to have a huge effect. It's definitely a noble goal and it'll make it kind of interesting at the end of the season to watch teams to see if, if somebody starts trying at the end because it doesn't really do them any good to finish last. They'd rather finish second to last. We'll see. It'll keep it interesting. Um, but I, I think that's going to end up not being a huge factor, honestly. And someone along all of these lines, one of your recent pieces that I really enjoyed, it's called the battle for baseball soul continues. And in it, you know, kind of your, one of your main points was, um, yeah, they have a new CBA, but it failed to address some really problematic aspects of the game itself. I was just for folks that have not seen that yet or want to go seek it out. Can you talk a little bit about where you're coming from uh, and the impetus behind writing that article? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's hard because as you said, it it failed to, the CBA failed to address some of this stuff, but I also am not sure how it could have, because I don't know how you legislate like trying and doing the right thing. And so Part of the problem is that the economics have been decoupled with, from winning. So the, with the TV deals and, st- and merchandise and all these other licensing agreements, teams are making so much money, whether they win or lose, that it's like, why spend money on payroll and try to win if you're still going to make a ton of money? Because they've got, as the TV deals, they, a lot of them are building up these sort of shopping malls around the ballparks. They're just a lot of revenue streams that don't, really have anything to do with whether the team wins. And if you're going to make that money anyway, then maybe you'd rather save the money on payroll and run out like an 81 win team and, you know, let them finish 500 and it doesn't really matter. And that it's sort of hard to incentivize against that from a financial standpoint. And so you just have to like hope everybody tries to do the right thing. And that is not something they have, shown either interest or ability in doing so far. And so that I think is really hard. And that's, that's something it's sort of a bummer that it feels like the players are the only ones advocating for everybody to try. Um, In some ways it doesn't make sense to me because players, as I said, play for three or four years on average owners are in this for decades. And then their kid is usually in it for decades after that. So it seems very short-sighted to, to not try in this way because your team's only valuable if people are still watching baseball in 20 years. And if the game is kind of slow on the field because nobody bothered to make any changes to how it's played, if half the teams in the league aren't competitive and so fans stopped watching and they, they moved on to other sports, it is this sport going to be where it like the cultural important institution in 20 years that it is now? I don't know. And I think, I, I think that it would, probably behoove the people in charge to think a little bit more about what their, uh, what their obligations are to the fans. You know, they, they talk about the sport, like it's a public trust every time they want public financing to build a stadium, but then they, they feel like they get to the, the a phrase I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of baseball writers use this, like they want to privatize the gains and socialize the losses that none of that stuff feels like it's not their problem if things aren't going well. And that can be frustrating for people who, you know, just want to watch sports. Like they just like baseball and it, it becomes so complicated and it feels like it doesn't really have to just try. As a, as a Cincinnati Reds fan, that, <laughs> yeah. that is, that is my reality right now, uh, which I want to ask you about a little later on, but um, just, just sticking on this theme a little bit. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. If, 
you know, if you could twitch your nose and, and make like one or two changes to baseball, like what do you think the most important things are? And I guess I asked that, do you think the most important issues are like on the field in terms of pace of play and, and just the way the game is being played, right? You know, high strikeouts, kind of all or nothing, uh, three true outcomes, that, that sort of thing. Or do you think that the deeper issues really lie off the field in the front offices and the way teams behave and operate? I think that it's twofold. It's, it's sort of some from column A, some from column B from the, and they're, they're, I guess the, they're both, it's a similar problem because in both cases, the incentives are kind of messed up. So on the field, the pitcher is incentivized to chase strikeouts and occasionally allow home runs and like deal with that to get the strikeouts hitters are incentivized to chase home runs and accept strikeouts. So you get this game where everybody is looking for either a home run or a strikeout because that's the most efficient way to play baseball. But that is, but the things that are fun about sports are not the efficient things. They're like the crazy plays. And so that is hard. And similarly, the ownership is incentivized to try to take as much money as they can and hold on to it. And that's not fun either. So everybody has sort of lost sight of the fact that this is supposed to be an entertainment product. And so I think the more guardrails they can impose, the better. So I like, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say like they should make the bases bigger, but I I like that. Who cares? Who watches baseball? Because who, I don't know what the size of the base is. I don't know what the number is. I mean, I know what the base paths are, but I think it's cool that they're going to, that they think they can incentivize steals with a couple of inches on the bases. I think I've long said, I thought they should cap the number of pitchers on the roster because that makes it harder for guys to throw so hard if they've got to go out there for more than one inning. Uh, and then that makes the ball easier to hit. I think that stuff is all really smart. Uh, the one, the big change that I would make that doesn't have anything to do with any of this, but would be good for fans is that stupid play where the guy slides into second and his hand pops off for like a fraction of a second, but the guy, the second baseman holds the tag on him and they go to replay and they call him out. That's nonsense. I would get rid of that. I would say, if you can't see it, in real time, like you can't slow it down. You can watch a replay at real speed as many times as you want. And if you can't see him come off at real time, in real time, forget it. So that's my big rule change. That's uh, when I run for commissioner, that'll be my platform. I Well, I will support you in that. Uh, I was curious where you stand on a hypothetical rule to ban the shift, because that's one that I think the more I've thought about, I, I think I would be in favor of that. And I guess the the version I would have in mind is, you know, you have to have two infielders on either side of second base as the pitch is delivered. You know, I think of like the NBA, for, for instance, has rules about what the defenders can do and where they can be positioned. And that hasn't taken away my enjoyment of watching professional basketball. And I, I, I think Putting a ban on the shift, in my mind, would make one, it would open up more holes for hitters. Hopefully, you get a little, you know, a few more ground balls, turn into base hits, et cetera, et cetera. But also, I think it puts, again, a premium on the athleticism of your middle infielders, which growing up like Ozzie Smith, Barry Larkin, you know, I can remember Ray Ordonez for the Mets. That's one of the most exciting plays in baseball is seeing, you know, that shortstop ranging deep into the hole or up the middle and, and making a play. So that's one that I'm like, oh, God, I think I would really like that rule. I'm, I'm curious, though, if there's anything I'm really overlooking or if you come at it from a different uh, perspective. 
No, I, I'm with you. I sort of my instinct when I heard about it was like, that's ridiculous. We shouldn't just make the game easier because guys can't figure out how to hit. But I don't know, man. It's hitting's really hard. <laughs> and they it's not like they're not trying. The pitchers are really good in a way that like the, the body can do things pitching that I'm not sure the body can do hitting. I think I like that they're testing into the minors. If in fact that seems to increase batting average. I think it's worth it. I also, well, I think a lot of pitchers would be happy about it. It's funny when you watch them, a lot of pitchers hate the shift, even though it works because they don't remember all the times that it gobbles up what would have been a hit. They just remember the time the guy grounds it between second and third base and there's nobody standing there. So there, I think there would be a lot of pitchers who would be sort of happy about it, even though it, it makes things worse for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, when my golf game, right. Everybody only remembers like the bad breaks or, or yeah, exactly. the, the bad things. Um, well, speaking of like commissioner and, and that office, how do you assess the job that Rob Manfred has done and is doing and will do, you know, from my perspective, I think he's a little, I've been disappointed in some of his bigger actions. I, I thought, I, the uh, the sign stealing scandal I, I didn't think he handled that as well as I, I would have liked you know obviously this this lockout I'm curious from you though you you know much more about it you're 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 plugged into the game how do you assess his job performance and and what's your take on on the commissioner I think that he is sort of miscast for this job um, I think he's a really good labor lawyer who doesn't always see the bigger picture. And I think that that gets him in trouble sometimes. Like the players hate him. And I don't think it had to be that way. Uh, And I think that he's sort of surprised by how much they hate him and not totally sure what to do about that. And I think a lot of it is just like, he's not a, he's not that personable. He's such a, he's a lawyer. So he, you know, when you say something to him, his first, the first thing he does is take issue with the premise of your question. He can't, he doesn't just sort of connect with with a person and understand what that person is trying to say. And I don't, so that's from the sort of the PR standpoint. I think he gets himself into trouble there a lot because he's having sort of a different conversation than a lay person would be having. From the perspective of the moves that he makes and the things that he does, I would say that I disagree with a lot of them, but I don't, the way to, uh, the fastest way to, to get fired as commissioner is to do all the stuff that fans would like the commissioner to do <laughs> because he, when, when you're younger, when you're not paying as much attention, you assume the commissioner's like the president of baseball, right? That he's just the biggest baseball fan in the whole world. And they find that guy and they put him in charge. No, he's just a dude who works for 30 billionaires. And so, and they're like ridiculous billionaires. You know, they're, they're people who have never been told no and aren't going to start now. They have insane demands. They are completely out of touch with reality. They don't talk to fans. They're never accountable to the people who, who watch their teams. They're usually like sort of hobbies for them while they go, you know, make money in hedge funds or whatever it is that they are doing. They're just, you know, uh, gut newspapers, whatever fun things billionaires are up to these days. So they don't, they're not like in this for the same reasons that you would think that you would be in it. And so they tell Manfred to go take all the bullets for him, for them. And he does. And so that means that everybody hates him a lot because the billionaires are behaving badly and he's the one doing their bidding. 
And so I definitely blame, like, that's what the money's for, to be clear. He is very well compensated for this. I don't, I don't, I don't feel particularly bad for him. Uh, but I do, I think that that is a really weird dynamic that most of us probably don't understand is that he has 30 crazy old people yelling at him all the time. And they also don't agree on stuff. They like, they all agree that they would like not to spend money um, and that they're anti-labor for the most part. But the CBA thing was very frustrating for them because the owners of big market teams were like, whatever, raise the tax thresholds. We don't care. And the lower revenue teams or the ones that the, the ones that call themselves small market teams were very upset. Like for example, your Cincinnati Reds were not that, that was a huge issue for them. And so you, he ends up having to thread the needle trying to keep both of these constituencies happy and also negotiate with the union. It's, I think it's more of a mess than it would appear. I think he very often steps in it, but it's, he's got kind of a lot going on and most of it is catastrophic, honestly. It's either like fine and you don't hear about it or it's just a disaster. Were the financial situations in the COVID shortened year and um, during the pandemic, in your opinion, are they as bad as some of the owners and teams made them out to be? No, definitely not. I mean, look, they definitely took losses in the COVID year, in 2020, the shortened season. And then some in the following season because there was no gate. But these people all have TV deals that paid, that paid them money. They didn't pay all of what they were going to pay, but they paid. They, uh, they all have these, like, these shopping malls that I was talking about around their ballparks. And so a lot of them were like, well, you know, we're, we're very leveraged. We're not that liquid. We have a lot of debt. And it's like, okay, unfortunately, that's your problem. You know, you didn't predict a pandemic, but that is a risk that you take on when you have a lot of debt that something could happen and you don't have very much money right now. And so that's, I mean, I'm, look, I'm not an eccentric billionaire. I'm not even a regular billionaire, but that does feel like a financial uh, tenet that they could understand. And so I think the only publicly traded baseball team is the Braves and they are making a ton of money. They're the only team whose books we get to see. And of course they just won the world series. Of course it's a team that because it was on TBS when sort of Gen Xers were kids, like has a lot of national fan, a large national fan base, whatever. It's not the lowest revenue team, but that team is swimming in it. And so until the owner's, are willing to open their books, I would say do not believe a single one of them when they say that they can't make money. I mean, they, uh, Bill DeWitt, the Cardinals owner, said that the losses had been biblical. Rob Manfred was trying to say that they make less money uh, owning a baseball team than in the stock market. It, like, Bill DeWitt said it was a bad, uh, it's basically a bad investment, which would be a new opinion for Bill DeWitt, whose family has owned baseball teams for like 40 years. So it just doesn't, the actions don't match their words. If it were really a bad investment, they would get out. Oh, it's yes. And as, like I said, as my Cincinnati Reds work to realign resources, quote unquote, this off season, it's just, it's very frustrating. Uh, Last point on kind of the, the front office or not the front office, but kind of the major league offices uh, that I wanted to ask you about was Theo Epstein. And is he a person that, can kind of get in the owner's ears and, and work to try to fix baseball. What, what, you know, I, I was a little excited. I, I think that was last year at some point when 
you know, the, the news was kind of going around that, you know, he might start this task force, but I'm just curious how that stands and whether, you know, you think he's a person that could pull that off, um, bringing change to, to the game, broadly speaking. I think he could, I think the question for him will be sort of what his threshold is for like not having fun doing this, you know, like it's, it, it, that's not that fun a job. It's not as much fun as winning the world series with the Cubs or even not winning the world series with the Cubs. It's uh, I think that he could. And I think he feels a little bit of responsibility. He said something when he left the Cubs about how he had sort of helped break the game by identifying all these inefficiencies. And so I think he feels some responsibility to help fix it. And I'm glad that he does because it's true that he did help break it. And he also has, this sort of coaching tree, executive tree of other guys who helped break it and are helping break it further. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's really hard when you're in it to, to stop exploiting these uh, advantages because all you do then is make your team less good for some very small moral gain. You know, there's no point if you're the GM in, t- in saying like, we are not going to manipulate service time for a young player because that's the right thing to do. Okay, but 29 other teams are going to do it, so your choice is between being right and winning more games um, because then you get the guy for another year. And so I think it's hard when you're in the thick of it to figure out ways to improve things. And so I think it would be great if Theo is up for that. Um, I mean, he has kids, he has part of why he wanted to step back from the Cubs was he didn't want to be doing this every day of his life. And I think fixing baseball is a job that you probably have to do almost every day. And so that will be, that's something he has been working on. Um, He was definitely in charge of a lot of the, the sticky stuff crackdown he's there there are, he's got sort of areas of interest like that that he's focusing on and i hope that i hope he enjoys it because i think he would be a person uh who could make a difference here i think he's got the respect from a lot of parties that you would need to get on board with changes and i think he's a smart guy who can see the big picture especially because he's no longer in the middle of it all the time well put. I, I completely agree with that. And I'm hopeful as well. Hey, everybody. Randy here. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I want to thank our other sponsor today, and that is our good friends at DraftKings Sportsbook. Golf season is in full swing. and You can get in on all the action on the fairway with DraftKings Sportsbook. New customers can bet $5 on golf's first major and get $25 in free bets for every birdie Bryson DeChambeau sinks in the first round. And if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still join the excitement on the course with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Golf Contest. This week, new customers can make their first deposit and play free for the $1 million top prize. Draft your lineup of six golfers while staying under the salary cap and rack up points for birdies, eagles, and more. Best thing is DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code NLU, bet $5 on golf's first major, and get $25 in free bets for every one of Bryson's birdies in the first round. Join the action with code NLU only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 and over, restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Thank them for sponsoring the Trap Draw, and now back to our episode. Well, shifting more on the field, uh, the, the, the more exciting stuff, before we kind of get into some some divisions and and team specific talk, I'm I'm curious if just this this frenzied off season, right post lockout, uh, new new faces and new places 
if you have some moves that you have really liked more than others, if, if there's, you know, a, a handful that really stick out to you as, as very good moves. Uh, I think Carlos Rodon to the Giants is, is a really good one. Um, I think they got a, a very good arm at a, a I mean, they, at a price they can afford, but at a price that sort of makes sense. I think he seems pretty excited to be there. The staff seems to have some idea of what, uh, what they're going to do with him. So that, that to me, and maybe because I was at Giants camp like two days ago, but that, that strikes me as a good one. Uh, Freddie Freeman to the Dodgers. I mean, I think if you can get Freddie Freeman, you pretty <laughs> much just say yes. So I think they were pretty happy to, to make that one work. Everybody involved seems happy about that. Uh, I like what the Yankees did remaking their, their infield and their catching position. I think that was really smart. It, uh, Gary Sanchez, I think it just wasn't, it, it was not working in New York anymore. I think he still has a lot of talent, but the team and the, the uh, player had soured on each other and he, it just, it wasn't a good fit. And so I think they upgrade their catching. They have a, they get a young mobile shortstop. Uh, I think that's a good, I think that's a really good one. I love everything the blue Jays are doing right now. Uh, the blue Jays, I think already were really fun and they are going to be just wild to watch this year. And then on the flip side, uh, head scratchers. I, I think I'll I'll lead with mine. Uh, I live out in Denver. The Chris Bryant okay. signing. I still don't. You know, you talk about Freddie Freeman. I think Chris Bryant got one more year and twenty million dollars more than Freddie Freeman. Uh, I don't know if that makes your list, but that's probably top of my list. Like, wait, what is? What are they? What are they doing? <laughs> that's top of my list too, but sort of maybe more from his perspective than from theirs. Like, Chris Bryant's a good player. You want him on your team. Seven years is a long time, but, you know, he's a good player. He's a good defender. His A lot of his skills, I think, will age pretty well. But I don't know, man. I mean, they just had a third baseman who was really good, who they gave a lot of money to, who they had to pay the Cardinals to take away from them. And I'm not sure – I'm not sure I get this one entirely. Um, I think I think that Chris Bryant is really excited not to be asked about – I think he wants some stability in his life. I think he got really frustrated with the Cubs that every day people were like, Hey, are you going to get traded? Hey, where are you going to sign as a free agent? Um, And so this, I guess he feels gives him that clarity, but I would think that there would have been a lot of other ways to go about getting that. And so I'm not sure Uh, it's not, I I, I just don't totally see why this one makes sense. Yeah. That's a good point from his perspective too. Cause it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you know, that's at least a few years of like really rebuilding before potentially they're, they're any good. Um, Did the Trevor story signing to Boston surprise you? Uh, That was one that I I guess only surprised me in that they seem to have a pretty good shortstop already. Um, But I know, you know, story's really good defensively. He historically has not really hit that all that well outside of Coors. Um, but I, I don't know where you come down on on that signing. Yeah, I think that uh, that one, I, I like that one actually because the Red Sox do have a really good shortstop, but he, uh, he's got an opt-out after this year. Okay. And he's a Scott Boris client. And he, that doesn't mean that he won't re-sign. I mean, he already signed an extension to be in Boston in the first place. But Xander Bogarts is also a smart guy who – you know, watches a lot of baseball, reads a lot about baseball. He knows the money that shortstops are commanding these days. And so I think it's good insurance for them. It's sort of like what the Dodgers did with uh, trading for Trey Turner the year before Corey Seager was up as a free agent. It 
you put him at second base right now, and then you can keep him at second if Xander sticks around. And if he doesn't, then you don't have to worry about shortstop. Um, I think in some ways, actually, it would have been a good fit for the Giants because they've got a similar situation with Brandon Crawford, who is only up, he's only got a one year deal. And so he may have two years, but regardless, he's not going to have, he's not going to be there for six more years. And so you, you sort of, uh, you pay a little bit less for, you pay for a second baseman, but you get a shortstop out of it. I think that's a, I, I like that thinking. And then from the Colorado standpoint, these guys say that, the uh, the level of fatigue that you feel playing for the Rockies is so different from playing for any other team that they all, like, you look at how DJ LeMahieu played when he left, Arenado has stayed pretty consistent. They really believe, and it seems to be backed up, that the recovery is so hard coming in and out of Denver that even though you don't have the altitude benefits of course as your home park anymore, you just don't have to, like, getting in and out of the city so it was a nightmare for them. They, they, they say they're congested for days after like it just the transition to and from altitude they say is really, really hard and they don't get enough credit for it. So we'll see. But that I think is the feeling about story that if he doesn't have to get in and out of altitude every few days, he may, he may find it a lot easier to hit on the road. Well, that's really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to use that as uh, a building excuse for myself now too, whenever, you know, I'm, I'm traveling, going in and out of Denver, and oh, totally, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. couldn't hit deadline. It's the altitude, you know, <laughs> exactly. got lost. It's the altitude, exactly. Um, not player specific, but has again, I come at it from a very much a place of of bias. But you know, I've been reading and trying to figure out what the Reds are doing, but I, I just don't know from like a national baseball writer's perspective is what the Reds are doing. Like, it, is that talked about? It, it's such a head scratcher on a local level in the sense that, you know, they had a, a really a pretty good team last year. And there was a lot of frustration that, you know, they addressing the bullpen early in the year could have gone a long way to probably making that a playoff team. Um, and then this year they they've, I mean, they're, they're just, it's like a fire sale. They're, they're just selling off anybody and anybody, uh, packaging Suarez with Winker, which a lot of people think, you know, dampened potential return if you're just trading Jesse Winker. So I guess that's a very long-winded way to say, like, are, are the Reds like a topic of conversation in terms of like, what the heck are they doing? Yeah, I think that is the topic. What the heck are they doing? Um, I was actually at Reds camp today and they were like, you're the first national writer who's been here. Um, <laughs> because I think people are just like, this team's not good. I'm not going there. Um, and it, it's sad. And it's, to me, it's dumb because that division, I mean, the Brewers are, the Brewers are good. The Cardinals look pretty good. The Cubs are rebuilding. I, I mean, I think there's room. I'm not, I don't, I don't know what they see that makes them think that they just can't compete because I think the team they had last year, they weren't far away. And I think it, especially with expanded playoffs, my goodness, everybody gets to go to the playoffs now. Um, but I think it, I think it really does a disservice to fans. I mean, Joey Votto's not going to retire at the end of this year or anything, but he probably doesn't have too many more good seasons left. Like the one, the ones he's been putting up. And I think, I think sometimes about the way that Andrew Friedman and Farhan back when he was with the Dodgers used to talk about Clayton Kershaw, they used to say that they felt 
responsibility when you have a guy like that in his prime to build a team around him that is worthy of him and to try to win the World Series with that guy. And so I, when I look at the Angels are at least trying, although they are so far they've been totally unable to make it work. But when I see like Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, I feel like they ha- they have the responsibility to put a team around those guys, and they're trying. The Reds, I think, I mean Joey Votto is the best Red in a while, and I think it's a bummer that fans probably aren't going to get to see him at his prime in it because he's still in his prime, which is crazy to say, but he's still really good. And they're not going to get to see that guy in the playoffs. And I don't know, that feels, again, we were talking about public trust. Like, I feel like you owe, you sort of owe it to the fan base. You've got this guy. Let's try to make it happen for him. Amen. Amen. I've almost, I, this, I cannot believe I'm about to say this, but I'm almost at the point where I wish Joey Votto would get traded. He he has, he has a no trade clause, but I, I, I almost wish he would get moved just for his own sake. To, to a contender, I would love to see him play playoff baseball. And that's that's really sad for me to say because he's like my favorite <laughs> baseball player of all time. Um, like how Blue Jays fans felt about Roy Holiday. They were like, yeah, get him out of here. Like, let him have fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you about Joey at the end of our, our discussion because sure. you wrote a piece about him last year that uh, was like my favorite thing I read all year. But before we do that, would love to go through the divisions real quick. Maybe get your thoughts on some teams and 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 any predictions you want to make. Uh, so let's start in the AL East. I know you said you really really like the the Blue Jays. I I do too. They're they're a fun team. Uh, just looking at some of the betting markets, they're actually that their regular season over under wins is the highest in the AL East. Uh, it goes Toronto, New York, Tampa Bay, then Boston, and then a huge drop off to Baltimore. So I guess. Do you think the Blue Jays have enough to to win that, uh, you know, murderer's row of of the AL East? Yeah, I think they do. And I think they've got sort of an, an advantage that feels like poetic now after two years of basically having to play on the road. Um, players who are not vaccinated can't get into Canada without quarantining for 10 days, which is more than a series. So they're not going to do it. So essentially, players who are not vaccinated can't play games in Toronto and they, you know, we don't have like official numbers. Many players have declined to disclose their vaccination status. But for example, Chris Sale has said of the Red Sox has said he's not vaccinated and he doesn't plan to be. So that's great for the Blue Jays. They don't have to face Chris Sale when the Red Sox come to town. Uh, we don't know about the Yankees, but the Yankees have, Aaron Boone said, have at least a couple of unvaccinated players. So the Blue Jays don't have to see them. And so I think they're already better than these other teams. And then they're going to pick up a couple of games because these guys are playing sort of their B teams. And I think, you know, we were kind of joking that during spring training, they should have uh, in the visitors clubhouse, they should be playing like OANN or something. They should be encouraging anti-vaxxer anti-vaxxers so that they could, so that the guys won't get vaccinated to cross, uh, to cross the border. But I do think that's, I think that's going to be a real, that's going to be a real thing. You're going to see that as the season goes, that's going to really show up. Oh, that's too funny. Um, and then Tampa Bay, do they surprise you anymore? I mean, just the way that they're able to consistently sustain the success. It just boggles my mind. It does. They're, they're really smart and they have an interesting strategy, I think, which is that they, they don't spend that much money on payroll. They're probably going to be around $80 million this year, which is, I don't know, they're probably like 22nd or something in the league. 
and they can be ruthless when it comes to dealing with the players like transactionally, like they'll trade guys, uh, they'll fight an arbitration, whatever that, that kind of thing. Like they'll save dollars where they can. But what's striking is how much players love playing for the Rays. Everybody who's gone loves, loved the Rays. They really have a good time there. Um, they try to, like the coaching staff tries to really make each player feel like an individual and make them feel like they matter. And it, it sounds kind of, maybe it sounds silly, but these guys play 160, 162 games and I think it's 184 days. It's, they, go, they spend a lot of time at work and they really feel like they're being put in the position to succeed over there. And they also, I think it helps too that they have had so much success. You kind of listen if the Rays say, hey, we think you should stop throwing your two-seamer. You're like, oh my God, it's the Rays, of course. <laughs> so guys are really excited to get traded over there because they're like, what are you going to do to make me good now? And I, it's, so some of it is, has become self-fulfilling where players assume that the Rays know what they're doing. And so they're much more willing to listen to advice from the Rays, which then makes them better because they're bought into these changes. Uh, and it, it's kind of an example of how culture can matter. The money step matters too, but culture can really matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's super interesting. I that that makes a ton of sense. Um, moving to the AL Central, it seems like seems like it's it's the White Sox and then uh, kind of everybody else. It, it's going to be a real fight for second. I don't know. So I went last year, uh, late last fall. Uh, it was September. I went to Comiskey Park. Uh, had never been there before. Um, a guy I work with DJ is a White Sox fan. And I went for a Reds game and I was blown away by how fun the in-person uh, stadium experience was at Comiskey Park. And it reflected like how fun that team and that group is. I don't know if you spent any time around the team or at Comiskey Park uh, and if you feel similarly and, you know, if, if you really like them this year as well. Uh, I regret to inform you that I think it's called Guaranteed Rate Field. Now, oh no! But, oh um, no! It should only. And it's possible it's had another name change since then. But no, yeah, I, I don't recognize most of the sponsorships. I, I love that. I, yeah, I go back to like what I knew it as a kid. You know, whatever it's that. Kind of like how the New York Times refuses to capitalize that, like NASCAR. <laughs> the New York Times is like, that's not our problem. That you think it's all capitalized. We're spelling it capital N, lowercase a s c a r. That's how you are with ballparks. Like, yeah. I don't accept. I don't recognize your new name. <laughs> exactly. Um, That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. The no laying up style is. The <laughs> it will <laughs> always be Comiskey. Yeah, and I'll exactly. give you its new Comiskey, right? Sure. I, I will make that distinction. Right. But it is Comiskey to me. I like that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, they, they're they super fun. They uh, I was just with them the other day, and they're all in a great mood. Uh, they know how good they are. They they're just waiting. Now they've got everybody healthy again for the most part. And they, I think are just kind of waiting to steamroll everybody else. And I think they will. I think you're, I think the biggest odds you had had them at 91 and a half wins and yeah. nobody better than 81 and a half. I think it's going to be an even bigger gap than that. They they're good. They're fun. And I think that they're just ready to wreak havoc on the central. I like it. Uh, do you think any of those other central teams will be able to snag a wild card spot? I know Minnesota's had a very active offseason. They'd probably be the first choice if a team's going to kind of make a leap. Uh, but curious, uh, the rest of those teams, if, if you like any more than others. Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be hard. The East is so good, but the teams in the East have to play each other. 
and the twins get to play, you know, like the Royals and the Guardians and a bunch of times. So I think they, uh, the twins definitely have a shot. If I had to pick a third team, probably the Tigers, because I know they feel they're close. I think they're another year away still, but uh, I do think they're close. The Guardians are sort of another embarrassment in terms of teams not trying, which is a huge bummer because they were in the World Series in 2016. We're not that far away. They had such good teams in in the not-too-distant past. Yeah. Um, Well, then the AL West, uh, Houston is the front runner, and then Seattle and the Angels, and then a pretty sizable gap then to Texas and Oakland. Uh, Do you think it's Houston's division to lose? Yeah, I do. I think uh, I got sort of caught up in – the Rangers infield splashes. And then I was looking at the uh, fan graphs projections and I was like, Oh my God, this team is really bad. <laughs> and I went and looked at the roster and like, Oh, right. Those two players are, those are the good players. And they have, they have two good players, Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, and they're really good, but there's only two of them. And so, you know, John, I mean, John Gray's the good pitcher, whatever they have some talent, but it seems clear to me that they are sort of, that they're a year away, like that they signed those guys now because those guys were available now, but they're not actually going to contend until at least next year. Yeah. Uh, and then the angels, yeah, the, 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 I say poor angels, but you know, they have, they have the two MVP front runners. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, good sport to kind of poke fun at them for probably doing less with more talent than, than anybody else. Uh, do you see a, uh, you know, are, are you optimistic about the angels, especially with, with trout coming back, uh, presumably healthy? I guess I feel like if this, if they can't do it this year, I'm not sure what has to happen because trout presumably healthy Otani after the year, he just had, uh, with, you know, Cindergard if he's healthy, Jared Walsh, I'm just, I'm not sure what, if Rendon is healthy and okay. Like this is it. This is the t- this is the best team the Angels are going to put together anytime soon. So if these guys can't do it, then it it starts to get in the territory of you got to start hoping that Trout and Otani find other homes where you know they have fi- they find new families who can make them very happy because it just it, it's it's like it's it's just a bummer, you know. I know. You want to see know. these guys when it matters. I know. Uh, God, Otani was so much fun last year too. I have not been that excited for a home run derby probably since you know i was like 10 years old maybe i legitimately could not wait to watch him in the home run derby and yeah, then he and kind of fizzled out which was a bummer but that's all right but he, yeah, but he made you interested he's got a good yeah. attitude about that we were asking him last year like isn't this gonna be exhausting and he was like oh yeah but the fans really want to see it so i'll come do it yeah and that that's uh that's unusual these days i think i think a lot of people that's an example of like the less efficient thing is more fun to watch. You know, the smarter thing for him to do is probably to take the week off that all-star break off, but it's an entertainment product and he's naturally entertaining. I mean, I was at their camp the other day and he and Jared Walsh did this impromptu batting practice home run derby and they got so into it. Uh, Jared Walsh won at the end. Otani groaned and fell on the, like fell to the ground moaning uh Walsh like threw his arms in the air and ran around there it's just they're fun there's and there's no one there I mean there are a couple of fans because it's Otani but like mm-hmm. this is on a backfield just batting practice they're fun that's that's great to hear well then over to the National League the the NL East obviously the the defending World Series champion Braves uh but I I think the the Maybe the biggest news is the Mets. The Mets might be back, which is, you know, it's been quite a few years since we could say that. They're both at 
projected 90 and a half win totals. Uh, is do you like one or the other, or could can the Phillies sneak in there? Who do you like in the NL East? I think I would take Atlanta just having Cunha back. I think Matt Olson's really good. They return most of the guys who most of their core, um, you know, having Albies, having Swanson, they, that, that's a really good team. And the Mets, I would like to see them prove it, I think, before I crown them, but they're going to be really fun to watch. Like, I'd like to see DeGrom make it past 100 innings, you know? Yeah. And if he can, then I think they're in really good shape, but I think there's a reasonable chance he can't. And so then, then they're in real trouble. The only other thing in the NL East, how, I didn't put this on the uh, the agenda, so I'm, I'm going to put you a bit on the spot, but Juan Soto for the Nationals, like I think a lot of people probably don't realize how good he is. Like, like how, how good is Juan Soto? Juan Soto is like, you can't pitch to him. Good. Like he stresses that like opponent opposing pitching coaches lose sleep over him. Good. There are no holes. Uh, Barry Shaluga of the Washington post wrote a great story the other day where he asked, and to be fair, it was all of Soto's teammates. So, you know, they're going to, puff him up a little bit, but he asked the pitchers, like, how would you get him out? And they were basically like, we can't. They, uh, I think it was Sean Doolittle was talking about how when you study a hitter, you watch video from, uh, for like from the pitcher's angle, but then you also watch video from the dugout, from the side angle, because sometimes that reveals a hole in the swing based on the bat path. And Soto doesn't have any. So it's almost more demoralizing to watch video on him than to just go out and face him blind because you can't, there's nothing you can do. You just have to go out there and feel bad and hope there's nobody on base ahead of him. Yeah. Uh, and I, he's he's fun. He's got swagger. He's he's a lot of fun. And I think if that team were better, more people would realize how good he is. But I hope that uh, you know between the All Star Game and just sort of his general Sports Center highlights, I hope more national fans realize national with a lowercase n fans realize how good he is and how much fun he is. Uh, totally agree. He, yeah, he has a presence too, like a swagger and, um, yeah, the just, little shuffle he does to the pitcher, like grabbing his crotch. I mean, he's exactly, he's, he's ready to be on TV all the time, you know, for sure. I just, yeah, I hope he doesn't toil on bad nationals teams for too long. Um, the, the central, you know, we, we kind of mentioned it's, I think it's the most, it has the most parody maybe on paper. Uh, yeah. you know, maybe another way to read that is it's probably <laughs> the most mediocre division in all of baseball. Yeah. You know, St. Louis is always there. They're like a vampire. They just, you know, you can't kill them. They don't die. Uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure they'll win 86 games or whatever it is. Yeah, well, now they got Albert Pujols, so they're uh, all the magic is back. I see. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Uh, do you like the Brewers? Uh, do you like, you know, the Cubs kind of seem like they're starting to wake up, spend a little money, bringing um, especially Suzuki over from, from Japan. Uh, yeah, was. Not- yeah, it was a move that caught my attention. What what do you make of the NL Central? It's a it kind of we were talking. It's like especially rude, I guess, of the Reds not to try to compete in this division because it's not that good a division. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the Cubs are probably a year away as well. Suzuki's really fun, and they you know they they signed Stroman. They they think he can be the guy, um, but they you know they traded the core. They're they're talking about trading Contreras. They're kind of. They're running low on good players at the moment. The the guys they have are young. Um, and the Cardinals, uh, you know, you should just, everyone should always be scared of the Cardinals. I don't know how they do it. No one knows how they do it. It doesn't really matter. They just do it. The Brewers, I think, are really smart. And they have the luxury of playing in this division. And so 
I think the Brewers are worse than the other, than whoever will win. I think they'll be the third best division winner, but they'll be a division winner because they get to play the rest of these guys. It, what, what's up with Christian Yelich? That's Have a great question. Uh, I think he wishes for <laughs> the answer to that. It's, it's weird that he and Cody Bellinger are both not very good right now. You know, two MVPs are both really struggling. I, I think, I don't know. I, I think some of it's injuries, some of it's sort of compensating for, for flaws elsewhere, but that's, that's going to be a huge question for the Brewers. I mean, he looked like he was going to be a perennial top three MVP guy. Uh, yeah. And then the NL West, I, I you know, it kind of is the counter counterbalance. I think to the AL East, you, you have really three teams that are just dynamite: the Dodgers, the the Padres, and the the Giants. Um, the, I mean, the Dodgers lineup is is a joke. It, like, can it can anybody beat the Dodgers? I mean, I guess we just start there. Like, can anybody beat the Dodgers? Really? It's a the, their question is going to be pitching. Um, they they've got Bueller, they've got Arias, they've got Kershaw and then it gets a little a little more challenging that that will be the issue can those guys stay healthy can can their back end rotation starters like can Andrew Heaney pitch well if not they're definitely there's a chance to do some damage but that lineup is just gonna you gotta really hit against the Dodgers because their lineup is gonna crush whoever you send out there against them what I read they have four former MVPs I think in their in their lineup is that right yeah, I think that's right. That must be nice. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, scary. Uh, and what do you do? You like the Padres? That that's a team that obviously was really feel good for a while last year, but then yeah, you know, injuries to Tatis Jr. especially seemed like they kind of fizzled, and then they made a managerial change. I, how do you how do you think things are going in San Diego? I think they'll be competitive for the sort of second tier, like I think they'll be competitive for a wild card. I don't think they're going to give the Dodgers too much trouble, but, but I think that Padres are doing what you'd like teams to do. They're trying. They don't, even in a division with the Dodgers and the giants, they're, they're spending money. They're really going for it. And they're seeing the results in that that place is electric, you know, fans in part because the expectations are so high, but fans are really into it. Even down the stretch as they were falling out of it, they were selling out. And it's, it's really fun over there right now. So I think it, it definitely hurts that Tatis is going to be out for a while, but I think they will, I think they'll at least keep it competitive. And let me put you on the spot. Do you have a world series prediction here on uh, March 28th or, that you're willing to, uh, to, to stake your reputation to? Uh, I actually just said to do one of these for uh, SI.com. So you can check that out there at some point. Uh, and I said, blue Jays over giants and six. I, I'm not married to that. Uh, almost any other combination is probably almost as likely, but that's the one that feels to me like those are the two teams. If I were in the NL, the team I would least want to face is the Blue Jays. And if I were in the AL, the team I would least want to face is the Giants. That's really interesting. Yeah, the Giants The Giants have kind of tapped into those. Whatever they're doing out there, they, they got some some magic going, going out there. Like the Dodgers four years ago, yeah. where everybody they bring into the game seems to play great. And yeah. so the Dodgers have more heavyweights right now, but because of that pitching staff, there are more questions. There are some question marks there, I think. And so I, I can see in the playoffs, the Giants just hitting on every single move. Hey, everybody. Randy here again. I want to thank one of our sponsors, and that is Gooder. Gooder sunglasses. This episode is brought to you by Gooder 
Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Polarized golf sunglasses that are lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you swing, starting again at just $25. They're no slip, no bounce, all polarized, look great on and off the course. Built with golf-specific lens, Gooder Sunny Shade sunglasses, whatever you call them, they all have the HD contrast and performance without the hefty price tag. And I have to say, they, they make many other styles of sunglasses besides golf. So go get yourself a pair for playing golf. And while you're there, pick up a pair for your car, pick up a pair, leave them at the office, get multiple pairs. Again, $25. They're high quality. They're awesome sunglasses. 100% UV protective, 100% polarized, free U.S. standard shipping on all orders over $50, 30-day free returns, and they all come with a one-year warranty. So try them out. Treat yourself, like I said, to a pair or two. Go to gooder.com. That's G-O-O-D-R.com. Get 15% off your entire order when you use code TRAPDRAW at checkout. All one word, TRAPDRAW. All orders over $50 get free shipping in the United States, like I mentioned, and that's 15% off with code TRAPDRAW at www.goodr.com. Look good, golf gooder. Appreciate them sponsoring the podcast. And now back to the episode. Well, Stephanie, uh, if you'll allow me, I was hoping to just kind of fan out for a few minutes and I wanted to ask you about your Joey Votto piece last year. Uh, right. You published it in September of 2021, really getting at the heart of his change in approach at the plate and his transformation mentally from quite honestly, seeking perfection, right? Like he, he is very uh, explicit that he was trying to be like the perfect hitter yeah. to more having fun and, just hitting the ball hard, but knowing that that's going to come with, you know, more strikeouts and, and a lower on base percentage in all likelihood. Um, I guess my question where I'd start was how did that all come about for you? The, the Genesis to, to write about Joey and what was that process like, you know, initially reaching out to him and talking to him? He's famously one of the more thoughtful and interesting players in the sport. So I was basically just hoping that at some point the reds were going to be good enough that, we would be justified in doing a big Joey Votto story because like, I'll take really any opportunity to talk to that guy. Um, and then they were playing really well last year and we felt like, okay, you know, they can hold on at least long enough to, to not make us look stupid when this story comes out. Uh, so I reached out to his agent, his agent, but for something like this, it, it I'm not really interested in a, sometimes I think a right around can work, but because Votto is so thoughtful, I wanted to hear his thoughts. Um, so I was not really interested in doing it if he didn't want to participate. Uh, so I asked his agent if he thought he would be up for it. The agent directed me to the uh, Reds PR director who ran it by Joey. And he said, sure, let's do it on the road in Pittsburgh uh, late in the year. And so I flew, I had actually been on a family vacation to Greece uh, literally until literally the day before I was supposed to see him. So I flew Athens to New York to Pittsburgh, like didn't even leave, like I packed <laughs> on my vacation. I packed the clothes I was going to wear, uh, on this interview because like that was when he was available and mm -hmm. he'd make it work for, uh, for Joey Votto. Um, but he was great. He just, we sat like in a sort of at the bar at the bar in his hotel, but at 10 AM. So it was empty. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was basically like, what do you want to know? 
and he's he's really thoughtful really interesting very funny and very i think he um i think he's very he understands he's very aware of what he's doing all the time so i think he says exactly what he wants to say and exactly how much he wants to say you know i'm sure there are many depths of joey's soul that we did not plumb and i think that he is sort of controlled enough to make sure that that doesn't happen um but he when you hit a topic that he's got some thoughts on that he wants to share there's almost nobody better in the sport is that the first time you had spoken to him in person yeah the first time we'd met okay obviously he was having a good season last year did did you know going in did you have the story in mind and and you just wanted to like work in some quotes or how did, did he say anything that surprised you or how, how do you go into, uh, I guess, a meeting and a conversation like that? Uh, obviously, you have, you know, some some questions you want to ask him, but how fluid were you and, and did anything like in the moment kind of take you by surprise and, and cause you to explore things you, that you might not have had in mind, I guess? Yeah, I think in that case, it was I didn't I didn't really have it mapped out. I just knew like this is a guy who as he's getting older, we thought was kind of deteriorating. And then all of a sudden he became a totally different hitter. And I wondered what that was like, uh, how, how, I wondered how active a decision that was as it turned out very active. Uh, I'm not sure that Vado does anything without making a decision about it, but I wondered, um, I, 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 what I really wanted to understand was why he would choose no offense to to remain in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Yes. Stone, a real effort to, to build around him, why he was trying to be a different hitter. Like uh, the question I kept coming back to is like, why is he here? Why is this happening? Um, and I thought, I also was interested in, sometimes people talk about if they speak more than one language, their personality is different in each language. And he does speak French. So I asked him about that. And I wondered if that was true with hitting too, if he felt like he was a different person now that he has a different hitting approach and he said he thought he was um, that he's a lot more relaxed and a lot more fun now that he's just going out to hammer the ball. And so I thought that was kind of fun that he, I, I did not expect him to say he was having more fun with this approach. I thought it would have been more fun to be the perfect hitter and that this would be sort of disappointing to him. And it seems like that's not the case at all, but this is taking him back to what he was as a kid when he just, you know, was trying to hit the ball far. And it seems like that's, like he was really enjoying that. I, and I know it's just one meeting, so I don't want to like overstate how much you got to know him, but was anything just about him? Did anything surprise you? Or, you know, I'm sure you knew all about him and from just covering him from afar and uh, probably talking to people that have interactions with him. But was there anything that, that really stood out or surprised you in any way? I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but he, uh, he's very fashionable. He, okay. <laughs> like you, I've seen ball players on. It was the morning of a night game, so it's not exactly an off day, but they've got sort of an off morning. And I actually we were in the team hotel, so I saw other players come by, and they're sort of uniformly in either basketball shorts or sweatpants or you know, in like shower shoes, whatever. They're not really making an effort. And he was in, I, I, I can't say for sure, but what appeared to me to be Gucci loafers, jeans that fit perfectly, this polo. He, like this man was dressed. And he, I, I just, I was very taken aback by that. I was taken aback by how um, he's very serious and polite, and, like in a way that I, I imagine his mother would be happy about. Like he looks you in the eye. I just saw him in the clubhouse today. 
he came right over and shook my hand and asked me how I was doing. He's very, when you're talking to him, you are the only thing that's happening in his world. And I have heard, I had heard that he was intense, but that, that struck me that he, he's really, I can sort of, you can sort of see why this man is so good at his job because he's very focused on whatever he's doing. Well, the piece is, again, from last September, uh, it's titled The One That Stayed. Red Star is Finding Satisfaction in Abandoning Perfection. Uh, I, I just, ever since you wrote that story, I've like wanted the chance just to say thank you because, again, it, it is a peek inside the mind of my all-time favorite baseball player. So I, I just really, really loved reading it and if I can ever pitch your, your editors or, or your bosses to go do more Joey Votto stories, please let me know because uh, it's fantastic. You don't have to pitch me. I hope the Reds are either <laughs> good or maybe so bad. And he's so good that it's notable. I'd love to have the chance to write more Joey Votto stories. He's such an interesting guy. Well, awesome. Awesome. Uh, the last question I wanted, and I've kept you a little longer than, than I told you. So I apologize for that. But just uh, if you're a reader at all, and if you have any favorite baseball books, or if you've read anything even outside of baseball, non-sports lately, uh, I, I'm always curious about what people are reading. So I guess that that's where I would love to end this. That is a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a bunch of my friends have written baseball books, so I feel like I have to I have to recommend that you read uh, baseball books by current journalists. I'm not going to na- mention any of my name because then if I leave somebody out, I will have failed. But there are a lot of if you read any of the books that have come out in the last couple of years, I, I would highly recommend that. Um, I think, what is my all-time favorite baseball book? That's a, Halberstam, I think, would be, is, is my guy. Uh, the, and part of that is probably because I grew up a Red Sox fan. And so, you know, the teammates, he, he has a lot of books that touch on either the Red Sox alone or the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry. And that, uh, I, I just, lo- I would eat that stuff up as a kid. Um, I loved his work. And I think, now, as I am older, I realize that some of that stems from the fact that he had other interests than baseball. He's obviously like his real job is he's a historian. Um, he's a political writer. And so that I think, I think that is really helpful. I think you can often tell when somebody has interests outside of sports, both the players and the writers. Um, and I think that really adds a lot. Um, what have I been reading recently that I liked? Uh, I just read the Anthony Dora book. Um, Clark Googleland, that was not sports at all, but I thought yeah. just like spectacular. It's like 700 pages, but I felt like it was worth it. Uh, that's that's the last one. I then then I was at the Olympics and now I'm at spring training. So I, I have um, the Underground Railroad, Railroad with me and I have not opened it oh. because these days are just, you know, you start at 6 a.m. And by the time you get back, you pass out. So the flight home, I really think I'm going to I'm going to start making some progress. I got you. I got you. Uh, one that I was going to ask you about, I was, uh, it's a novel, but it's, it's very baseball centric is the art of fielding and whether you read oh that by I, that. I I'm glad you mentioned that because it's been a couple of years, so it didn't spring to mind, but that is an all time great piece of work. I think it's incredible from a baseball perspective, from a writing perspective, from a, like a human perspective. I mean, I am really interested in the yips. I guess that'll be our only, golf conversation here but i think the yips are fascinating wherever they appear and i i think that book is so good and i am so uh i'm, I'm glad it's so good because if it had been worse i would have been annoyed that i it didn't occur to me to try to write a novel about the yips first but that book is so good 
that no one else could have done that anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's, it's so good. And I'm with you. The yips fascinate me. Oh, uh, I've had the putting yips myself. I, it's just, uh, it's so interesting from like a human psychology standpoint. I feel well, like I get the writing yips. So yeah. I, get, I, I, I definitely uh, feel for people who have them. Well, I know you cover a little bit of golf. So, you know, if, if you're ever at a major, we'll have to get you back on and, and actually talk some golf at, at some point. But this is this has been a, a very big thrill. Like I said, I've been a fan of your work and your writing uh, for quite a while and uh, having the chance to talk to you. Can't thank you enough. And it was a real treat. So um, good luck with the rest of spring training. And I hope you enjoy the start of baseball season. I was going to ask, who did you grow up a fan of? Where, where are you from? And I grew up outside Boston. So uh, you really, you're not allowed to live there if, uh, if you don't know what the Red Sox are doing. So that's, okay. that was my indoctrination. And so it's been a tough, you know, it's been a tough 15 years for you. Has it? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. They all said that you would, I would lose the fandom as I got older, or, or as I got into this job. And I thought that couldn't possibly be true. And it really is like, I'm happy for the individuals who are nice to me. Uh, and there's definitely when I'm at like in 2018, when I watched the Red Sox win the world series and I walked into the clubhouse, I understood that 13 year old me was absolutely losing her mind, but I like had, I had a story to write, you know, and that, so I, I sort of mourn the loss of that, but it is, it is fun to get to do this job. And I try not to lose sight of that. Well, awesome. Um, at Steph Epstein is the Twitter. Uh, you can check her out at Sports Illustrated. Anything else to plug anywhere else you, you want people to find you? That's it. Just uh, SI.com. Check it out. Favorite rapper, hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite.